Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour, where we give you the rational perspective on business news that matters. I'm Jackie Cameron. On tonight's show, we look at whether U.S. stock markets have reached boiling point. We hear about hedge fund expert Ray Dalio's bubble indicators and speak to Dr. Richard Smith of the U.S.-based Foundation for the Study of Cycles. Coming up in the second half, Grace Harding of the Restaurant Collective and investment analyst Chris Gilmore on the hard-hit hospitality and leisure sectors. Brian Van Rooyen of Labatt Africa and Pierre van der Hoven of Silverleaf Investments speak to us about the cannabis industry. And Mornay Wilkin, CEO for Hyprop, catches up on the property sector. First, the news highlights from my business colleague, Melanie Nathan. African Rainbow Minerals headline earnings for the six-month end of December more than doubled to a record high. An interim dividend of 10 rand per share was declared. Both platinum and ferrous metals earnings were boosted by higher U.S. dollar prices. The Solidarity Fund, set up to finance South Africa's fight against COVID-19, plans to spend half a million rand to boost the country's vaccine rollout program. The fund will withdraw half of the money from its own account and an equal amount will be raised by donors, said Chief Executive Officer Tandien Zimande. The support will ease pressure on a government trying to contain spending after a surge in debt and an economic contraction. South African civil servants have demanded a pay rise that's more than double the inflation rate, a week after the nation's finance minister insisted the government can't afford increases. The Public Servants Association, which represents almost a quarter of a million government employees, says they want across-the-board wage increases of inflation plus four percentage points. South Africa's inability to balance competing interests is hampering the implementation of growth-enhancing structural reforms, according to Kuban Naidu, a deputy governor of the central bank. Naidu says the country doesn't have a large enough middle class to play a stabilizing role in policymaking. Policy paralysis means that Africa's most industrialized economy was stuck in its longest downward cycle since World War II, even before the coronavirus pandemic. Two residents of New York City have been infected with a variant of COVID-19 first discovered in South Africa. According to our partners, the Wall Street Journal, the city's health commissioner said that officials are looking at whether the new variant is more transmissible, causes more severe illness, and whether it reduces the effectiveness of vaccines. Subscribe to Business Premium for full access to the Wall Street Journal. I'm Melanie Nathan, and that was your Business Flash Briefing. Justin Rowe Roberts covers the JSE for Biz News. Justin, what's been happening on the markets today? The JSE All Share Index was slightly down on the day to 68,300. Some of the day's highlights include SAPI increasing by 7% to over 47 rand a share. This is on the back of news that investment bank JP Morgan increased its price target on the paper and packaging manufacturer to 70 rand. Patrice Motsepe's mining arm, African Rainbow Minerals, lost more than 12 rand on the day. That was on the back of a worse-than-expected interim results release. Diversified global miner BHP Billiton decreased by 20 rand to shave over four, to a shave over 470 rand, coming off all-time high prices on the back of weaker commodity prices across the board. Lastly, JSE heavyweight Naspis increased by more than 50 rand as it heads towards the 4,000 rand a share mark, and that's on the back of Tencent increasingly strongly in Hong Kong this morning. In the currency markets, very little movement today. The rand is at 15 rand to the dollar, 21 rand to the pound, and 15 rand to the euro. Gold weakened by $7 to $1,715 an ounce. Bitcoin was up almost $2,500 on the day to $51,000 a Bitcoin, which equates to around 765,000 rand. And Brent crude is up $1 to $63.60 a barrel. Charles Boerter covers markets for business from the Western Cape. Charles, you've been digging into a fascinating report looking at whether U.S. stock markets are in a bubble by Ray Dalio. Charles, before we get into the meat of the bubble indicator, you follow Ray Dalio closely. Tell us who he is and why there is so much interest in his analysis. Jackie, uh, Dalio is the founder of the world's uh, largest hedge fund uh, at the current RAND exchange rate. His firm is managing about 2.5 trillion RAND. 
And to put that into perspective, that's a little bit more than half uh, of SA's GDP. Uh, Dalio also wasn't featured in the big short, um, but he called the crash, the 2007 crash, and he made 14.1% for his clients, while the average hedge fund was down about 30%. And finally, uh, Dalio is also among the world's 100 richest people with a net worth almost uh, large enough to pay off ESCOM's debt. Wow. So Ray Dalio says lights are flashing for tech stocks, but... Uh, he's telling us that the overall U.S. market is not overheating just yet. Take us through his key points, Charles. Yeah, you can think of uh, Dahlia's bubble indicator um, as a sort of th- thermometer. So zero is, yeah, there's nothing happening, and 100 degrees Celsius or boiling point is that's bubble territory. So in 1929, the model indicated... Uh, 100 degrees Celsius, and also in the 2000 uh, dot-com bubble. Um, but now, if you look at the state of the market now, that's the important question. Their model suggests the current temperature is about 72 degrees. So it's getting hot in the kitchen, uh, but it's not boiling yet. But you'll ask, but why 72 now? Why not 100? Um, and it works like this. Uh, Dalio's um, indicator is based on six measures. So for the the Celsius, the thermometer to reach 100 degrees Celsius, all six measures need uh, to be at 100% or need to be to indicate that uh, the market is in bubble territory. Currently, only four of those six measures are showing that the market's in a bubble. So which two are not? The two that are not are the following questions or the following measures. Uh, they ask, are prices high relative to traditional measures? He doesn't explain what those are, but my best guess is that that'll be things like uh, stock prices relative to company earnings, stock prices relative to cash flows, things like that, things uh, equity analysts would look at. So he says that's not particularly high when you compare it to uh, 1929 or 2000, and that's why on this measure, the measure of all prices high relative to traditional measures, the model indicates that we're not in bubble territory. The second measure is um, have businesses uh, made extensive forward purchases? And what, it, what this is trying to answer is are businesses very optimistic confident, perhaps overconfident of what the future holds and therefore buying lots of inventory and things like that. And the answer seems to be not particularly. So my colleague Alec Hogg in our Johannesburg studio also produced a very interesting uh, newsletter today for Business Premium on Ray Dalio. Alec, do you want to just take us through the key points you picked up on? Yeah, the big uh, problem that I, uh, well, that, that hit me very hard is in our business portfolio, we have a lot of exponential shares, a lot of tech stocks. And Dalio says that emerging tech, as he calls it, is in bubble territory. So that's at the boiling point. Uh, and I'm afraid we're going to have to do something about that. I've been worried for a while, and you've got Dr. Richard Smith coming up in just a moment, Jackie, but there are many indicators when the retail market gets as excited as it has been getting in the United States about certain stocks. You just look at Tesla. You uh, think of the way that Amazon, Apple, uh, when, when Apple announces a share split, the share price goes up. It should make no difference whatsoever, and there are many of those, and Dalio is telling us, although the in the broader U.S. market, isn't in bubble territory. He did say that emerging tech is. So that's the big story uh, for us uh, and is particularly for our business share portfolio. So we're going to have to address that. But I'm really interested to, to hear what Richard has to say in a moment. And, and Charles, that was a great uh, synopsis. Thank you. So Richard Smith is chairman of the board and CEO of the U.S.-based Foundation for the Study of Cycles, which is a non-profit organization. Dr. Smith, before we get into a deep dive on the markets, can you just give us a brief overview of the purpose of your foundation? Yes, thanks for having me, Jackie. Great to be here. So we are 80 years old officially this year, founded by Edward Dewey, who was uh, a chief economist in the Hoover administration and was tasked in uh, by Hoover, President Hoover, to figure out what caused the 1929 stock market crash and ensuing depression. He talked to 100 different economists and got 100 different answers and decided that he needed to look elsewhere. (laughs) 
And in the course of his research, he started to discover cycles. Um, I really believe Dewey was one of the original behavioral economists uh, long before even Kahneman and Tversky. And um, cycles really are part of, you know, our life as humans and life on the earth. And uh, they play a role in our world. So the foundation for the study of cycles certainly has an economic focus, but is broadly interested in how cycles, um, you know, drive events and, and behavior in our world. And uh, so you've had a look at Dalio's report. And what do you make of his finding that he's seen a lot of bubbles in his time and he knows what he means by a bubble and he doesn't think we're quite in a complete bubble yet? What did you make of that? Well, I am a fan of, of Mr. Dalio. Uh, he, he does phenomenal cycles work, by the way. He's been publishing regularly on 500-year cycles, currency cycles, um, China and the United States. So, look, if you're going to listen to anyone, uh, Ray certainly has credibility. Um, I think he's proven himself as somebody who really thinks about things outside the box and studies history. And... Um, certainly you have to listen to what he has to say. So I personally am concerned about um, a significant chance of a correction. Uh, anybody who's been around for at least 20 years in the markets knows that this feels familiar. I was just starting investing myself back in the late 90s and uh, early 2000s, right? And, um, you know, I was one of the young people getting drawn into the markets back then. And certainly that feels familiar right now, especially given, you know, the 12 years basically of uh, bull market, you know, taking out the, the COVID correction. Um, we've basically been in a 12-year bull market now since the 2009 um, financial crisis bottom, uh, quantitative easing all the way. And um, it's late in the cycle. So both Ray Dalio um, and then I don't know if you also heard the Jeremy Grantham. Yes, we uh, did. We, we this week. Yes. <laughs> so you have a couple of, uh, you know, look, uh, you could call them dinosaurs. I, I, uh, I was particularly intrigued by Vlad Tinev, CEO of Robinhood, calling Charlie Munger, you know, elitist and uh, and what, you know, I forget the other term he used. Uh, it was incredible, you know. So, look, if you want to dismiss um, you know, the market wisdom of Charlie Munger, Ray Dalio, and Jeremy Grantham, the accumulated, you know, I don't know, what is there, 150, 200 years of experience there, incredible success, uh, be my guest, you know, um, you will dismiss it at your own peril. So, uh, you know, personally, I, and it was interesting to me that both Grantham and uh, Dalio put their kind of, um, you know, stats at about 80%, not 100%, right? So, and that lines up with my personal feeling that we're not really at the top yet. Um, but uh, that, you know, you definitely need to be keeping an eye on the exits. And um, it is something that needs to be taken seriously. I think another one that I was looking at recently, the uh, NAAIM data. I think they're the National Association of Active Investment Managers. Um, you know, so they're professionals, right? And they're uh, and they are for the first time, you know, over 100% long in their portfolios. And these have a very predictable cyclical behavior every three years or so. Um, so there's a lot of things that certainly give us all pause. Um, you know, those of us who are paying attention. And Dr. Smith, one of the things that Charles and I were trying to come to grips with when we looked at this Dalio report earlier was mm -hmm. this mention of emerging tech stocks. What is an emerging tech stock? You know, there's so many companies out there that are connected to tech in one way or another. And, you know, Apple has been around for at least, you know, two decades and Microsoft has been around forever. How do you define an emerging stock? Which are the dangerous stocks to be in that look frothy? I think you have to be looking at the stocks that are up you know, hundreds of percent or thousands of percent even, right? So um, irony of ironies was listening to Jeremy Grantham, uh, and he owns one of these emerging tech stocks, I would say, which is it's called Quantum State, I guess, and it's a 
a battery manufacturer, right? And he bought in at two and a half dollars a share. They did a SPAC, right? Uh, Special Purpose Acquisition Corporation, right? And the stock is at apparently like $130 a share now, right? So um, he was feeling good about it at $10 a share. And then this thing just went nuts, $130 a share. Richard, here in South Africa, about a one-fifth of our market is made up by NASPAS, which is a proxy for Tencent in Hong Kong. Yes, Would Tencent right. be one of those emerging uh, tech stocks? I think Tencent is probably you know, not what Dalio is talking about. Um, that's call it a large you know, uh, mega cap tech stock. <laughs> so Tencent is kind of in league with uh, Google and Apple and others i think he's talking about smaller stocks you know i think in and jeremy grantham you know was talking about this stock they're not going to have any earnings for four years right and yet they're valued at you know more than general motors so those are the kinds of emerging tech stocks that i think he's talking about um you know you i'm sure you all know who kathy wood is right and her arc etf the kind of technology that she's investing in um and just so for our listeners who aren't familiar with Kathy stuff. Wood, she's the hot fund manager of the the year, isn't she? She's been investing oh, in all yeah. these stocks and a big uh, supporter of Tesla stocks and ridden that wave and so on. And a big supporter of Bitcoin and um, other crypto and blockchain technologies. And look, this is all technology that is going to um, change our world. You know, I, I really do personally believe that um, technology like Bitcoin is as significant as the, um, the creation of the internet itself. So these are new technologies. Um, they are going to have a big impact in our world. I think biotechnology as well, um, but it's frothy. Jeremy Grantham said a few weeks back that if you took all your money off the table for a while, you probably wouldn't fare too badly in your portfolio. What's your uh, advice to people who are wondering, should they perhaps you know, take a bit of profit, withdraw a bit? How should we play our investment strategy now in the light of this very tricky situation? Yeah, I think it depends on if you're just getting started out, you know, or if you have uh, been able to take advantage of this bull run here. So um, for those of us who have been in for a while, I think uh, selling a little bit and raising some cash is a great idea. Um, If you're not in the market at all and you're just getting started, then, you know, don't overcommit, but you need to get involved. So we can't try to over time things it depends on you know where we're at in life and what's going on i you know a new story that broke this week that or sort of you know hit the press this week was these non-fungible tokens have you all been tracking those at all can you just elaborate uh, on what they are for our south african uh, audience so it basically is a blockchain technology mostly built on the ethereum protocol that allows um, digital assets to be, you know, uh, immutably authenticated. So um, you can sell a piece of digital art and whoever holds the keys to that piece of digital art can say, you know, unequivocally, I own this, this is authentic, it cannot be forged, here it is. And you have works of art, digital works of art selling for, you know, millions of dollars now. Um, and just because they can be authenticated on the blockchain, right? So this seems very frothy. They're selling, uh, you know, NBA video um, snippets of, you know, dunks and, <laughs> and other things called Top Shot. And these are trading like baseball cards from the old days. And um, meanwhile, in the, in the case of those, you, you can say that you own it, but you're not getting royalty rights from it and they're available elsewhere on the internet. So I think I bring it up because I think it's a great example of the time that we're living in right now, which is both, uh, as another commentator put it, um, historical and hysterical. 
<laughs> so that's um, a good way of putting so, it. Uh, yeah, I thought it was great, and I think that's you know it is a historical and a hysterical time all at once, and you know they often go hand in hand. But before we leave you, Dr. Smith, just let's pick your brain a bit on Bitcoin, which is a very uh, and cryptocurrencies in general hugely um, exciting for people in Africa, and it's really a hot market. What is what is your research on cycles tell you about cryptocurrencies? Um, like most things right now, the cycles are closer to a top in Bitcoin than a bottom. Um, Cycles in general, though, are better at calling bottoms than they are calling tops. <laughs> okay. Um, but I think that, again, you know, um, for somebody like myself who's been in Bitcoin for a while, it's a good time to be taking some profits. For somebody who doesn't own any Bitcoin, um, it's a good time to start just, you know, putting in $10 or $100 a week and dollar cost averaging into it over a period of time. I think everybody should own a little bit of Bitcoin. Um, like I said, I really do think it's a technology that is here to stay and is going to change our world. And I think it has a lot to do with um, kind of data sovereignty and privacy, which are big issues in technology right now. And, you know, the, the NFTs, non-fungible tokens, are interesting because they do provide an authentication of ownership. So you're not just licensing somebody else's work. You actually own it, and you can demonstrate that you own it. So I think that's a good illustrative example of what these blockchain technologies kind of bring to, you know, let's face it, a technology world that we live in right now where there's haves and have-nots, right? And the haves are Apple and Google and Tencent and WeChat and, you know, everybody. And, and uh, in the financial space, Robinhood and Citadel, right, that are aggregating data on all of it, the users and basically using that data to uh, see things that the rest of us can't see and to um, profit off of, you know, what in our machine data age amounts to inside information. So I think that's got to change. I think it is changing. I just saw today Google has said that they're no longer going to sell ads based on your browsing history. And they're going to start to limit the amount of tracking that they do on you. That's a big change. And I think those changes are happening more and more and uh, are going to play a bigger and bigger role in our world. And, and I think that's why Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies are very interesting. That was Dr. Richard Smith, Chairman of the Board and CEO of the U.S.-based Foundation for the Study of Cycles. Thank you. Coming up, we've got Grace Harding, the spokesperson for the Restaurant Collective. And in the second half, we've also got Chris Gilmore, Brian Van Royen of Labatt and Pierre van der Hoven of Silverleaf Investments. Well, I think we've got Grace here on the phone uh, for you, Jack. So over to you. Brilliant. So Grace Harding is the spokesperson for the Restaurant Collective and the CEO of Ocean Basket. And she's been campaigning very hard for the government to ease off a bit on the hard-hit hospitality sector. Grace, how, how do you think the situation will change now that South Africa's moved from level three to level one of the lockdown restrictions? Hi. Well, um, first of all, there's so many different types of restaurants. So I think for casual dining restaurants, it's definitely going to have an impact for two reasons. First of all, the staff don't have to close shop and rush home. So the customer's got a bit more time to linger. And the biggest impact we envisage is the fact that level one equals we are more relaxed. And we are more relaxed means, okay, I'm going to go out now. And we actually did see um, a little bit of a lift on the weekend. So, um, yeah, it definitely is going to benefit. Obviously, the nightclubs and bars are still shut down, which is hell of a tough for them. But it will be of benefit to us. And uh, last year, you spoke about how uh, up to 70% of businesses in the sector had to retrench employees and 40% mm. hadn't received any form of government support. Uh, what does the sector look like now? I think, you know, it's so difficult to make an assumption because as an industry, we haven't 
got the data and this is the work that we've got to do is get the data. But I think the retrenchments have perhaps eased, but there are still employees working shorter shifts, not working every shift. So there still is struggle out there and it is easing up slightly in terms of the UIF and TERS payments. It's very hard to tell. I think that many restaurants gave up um, and I see that October to December there's some more TERS, but you you have to be a business that was closed because of COVID. And it's quite difficult that because if a restaurant in the airport was closed, it was because of COVID and the airport was open, but there aren't many passengers. So there's still a little bit of funnies, but uh, I, I don't think that more people are being retrenched, but I think the restaurants that closed, closed, and people are definitely earning at least half of what they were earning in the restaurants. Just explain for people who aren't familiar with this term, TERS. What is TERS? Mm. So TERS was a payment that the government put in for COVID that would pay the gap between what you earn and what you were earning. And there were different limits. So people who earned, obviously, in the higher bracket got a smaller amount. But for restaurant crew, um, let's say you were earning 4,000 rand and you were put on half day or half shift and only got 2,000 rand, the government paid that difference. And it's made a real difference. On the UIF side, yes, some employees were paid, but I would make a, a very uh, confident assumption that – about 50% were not paid UIF. Why is that? Because of corruption and, and incompetence um, in the <laughs> sharing out of those funds by the government? Uh, Jackie, I love how you speak. I think there's a few things. Um, definitely, uh, there are lots of restaurant crew who are Zimbabwean. And there's a huge debate emerging now about the number of foreigners who work in restaurants. We definitely are being looked upon with a microscope. And when we were following up on behalf of some of our restaurants, we were told that the system that captures the data for their permanent residence was not linked to the other system. So it, it sounds like what we know is that there were lots of system problems, um, but it's very complicated. Perhaps some of them didn't have the correct papers. Perhaps some of them weren't on the system. I don't want to make assumptions. It's just resulted in suffering. So the government funding hasn't benefited anybody who isn't uh, fully up to date with their paperwork or not fully up to date with their tax. So it, it sort of benefited those who have abided by the law, perhaps. Yeah, which is right. So restaurants who, for example, were not contributing to UIF, and, and I'm sure there were some, I'm, you know, I don't know personally, I'm sure that that was one of the criteria and the application process is extremely laborious. I mean, you've got to apply and phone and phone and phone and, and you know, it's, it's not easy. It's not like at the click of a button, submit your stuff and you get the money. But um, I don't think that there's more tours coming our way. I think it's all dried out now. And restaurant crew are not working at full capacity, especially in places like Cape Town, you know, the Eastern Cape. I'm in Cape Town now and it is terrible how dead uh, the waterfront is and all the restaurants around there. Really, I've never seen the waterfront like this in my life. So real hardship there. What about the banks? We've heard a lot of criticism directed at the big banks and they were supposed to help share out uh, government funding, not only to small businesses, but larger businesses as well. How has your sector experienced the support from banks? Um, we weren't... Uh, involved in any of that. I, I don't know if it included the restaurant sector, um, but we didn't, you know, obviously we, we worked with the banks to delay payments and things like that and to help restaurants with cash flow, but we, those were the only dealings with, we had with them. And I must say most of the banks we dealt with were very helpful. So we, we didn't have huge problems with the banks. Well, that's good to hear some good news. Uh, Grace, there's a possibility of a third wave of COVID-19. We hope it doesn't happen, but there is that risk, particularly as we let mm. our hair down and socialise over Easter. How is your mm. sector preparing for the possibility of another wave? How does one prepare? I mean, uh, the thing we learned last year, look, 
Jackie, we've learned lots of great lessons. We've learned to be more efficient. We've learned to do more with less. We've learned to shrink our menus. So those have been good things. So it's almost like how much will it shock us? You know, it's like we've been beaten down by this huge wave and we've just learned to stand up and empty the sand from our swimming costume and carry on. So it's not necessarily are we prepared for a third wave, but are we more prepared for unforeseen circumstances? Yes, we are. And it is scary. That was Grace Harding, spokesperson for the Restaurant Collective and also CEO of Ocean Basket. Chris Gilmore is an investment analyst and market commentator. And like me, his body is in Scotland and I think his heart and head are in South Africa, Christopher. Good afternoon, Jackie. Chris, what do you make of the... Can you hear me? I can hear you very well. Thank you. Chris, what do you make of the hardship that's been experienced in the hospitality and leisure sectors? And uh, not to sound uh, ruthless, but are there investment opportunities now that all these companies have been hit really hard? To answer your first question, look, your heart really goes out for them because, um, you know, this is an an industry that employs many, many hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people across the entire country. And um, as Grace said, you know, this is, uh, it's had a devastating effect. And look, let's be, let's be be very fair about it. It's not all, (laughs) it might be 90%, the fault of government, but it's not all the fault of government. I think the the, the the latest thing is more to do with the the massive lack of inbound tourism, uh, inbound international tourism, and that's that's a global uh, feature. And notably in the UK, you know, we've had this kind of uh, knee-jerk reaction to the so-called South African variants and the Brazilian variant of that whatever variants you can think of. Um, so you, you're just shutting down the airlines now, and you've got ghost airlines flying back and forth, um, like Qatar, for example, flying with three or four people. They're, they're doing it to preserve the slots, but that's what I'm, I'm digressing here. So, you know, are there opportunities? As I wrote in yesterday's or today's column on, on City Lodge, I suspect um, a little while ago, City Lodge was being priced for uh, extinction. Uh, they were operating at maybe 3 or 4% occupancy. The only thing that they were taking was um, uh, quarantine hotel business. And... Uh, if you look at the whole of last year, 17%. I think they're pretty much as low as they can go. And look, there's been a consolidation in the industry already. You've seen the Airbnb uh, operators not doing what they used to do in terms of um, the, the short-term lets. They're tending to go for longer-term lets now. Section 12J in the, in the last budget is, is, is pretty much going. A lot of those things were, were hotels. Um, you're seeing the Michelangelo pretty much mothballed, the same as the, the Durban um, uh, Hilton. Uh, so I think something like City Lodge, as I say, is probably at the bottom. Uh, touch wood, you know, you've got to, one has to make sure, again, coming back to what Grace was saying, that although the industry may be prepared and braced for further uh, outbreaks of you know, a third wave and this type of thing, provided you don't, you don't get too much of thing, then... Um, then I think we should see City Lodge coming to break even in the next couple of months. And that should be good. So, uh, look, I think there's some opportunities there, definitely. Thank you. Yeah, really depressing stories and real uh, iconic names that we're going to um, lose from the South African landscape forever. Ever. It's really quite tragic. Chris, uh, and, um, thanks for joining us. It's quite, we got like the Scottish show, and uh, I think after the way that Scotland beat England, uh, it, it is it, it is a time. We've got the former um, chairman of South African Rugby Football Union here with us, uh, so so he's celebrating with him. Hey, Brian, of man? course, I I am indeed. <laughs> we're going to be talking to you about cannabis in a little while, but Chris, my my question here is that we are surely now getting to the point where we have to start looking not just at City Lodge, but other equities that have been bombed out in the way that you described there. Can you give us a list that uh, the, the listeners to the uh, Business Power Hour can go out and do a little bit of homework on? Okay. A couple of weeks ago, I looked at a company called One Logics. you know, a good little operation, uh, very well managed, tightly managed, an entrepreneurial type of operation, and had some shocking results recently. 
And um, I think again, that's you know, if if you look at the the earnings, it doesn't look doesn't look cheap if you, if you just do a kind of straightforward uh, PE. But um, very very well managed operation. And bear in mind, they do a lot of transporting of uh, of cars. And if you look at the original uh, equipment manufacturers, they've been holding back uh, this type of thing because of lack of demand. But that that demand is going to come back, uh, undoubtedly. So I would have a look at that. Um, I think you've also got to take a look, a long, hard look at a lot of the um, the mining stocks out there. Goodness knows we don't have anything like the, the number of mining stocks in South Africa that, that we should have, given the degree of mining activity that there is in the country and, and given the the number of metals and minerals underground. If you compare South Africa with um, Canada and Australia, the number of junior miners is lamentable. It really is, it's quite pathetic. But be that as it may, um, I, I suspect that we're only at the beginning of what I see as being a commodity super cycle, another one, prompted really by what's going on in China now. And what will, what will I've got no doubt whatsoever, uh, start to materialize when, when the US particularly starts its big infrastructure drive. The thing that Donald Trump, Trump talked about but never really got anything done on. I think Biden will, will get do much more on, on that type of thing. So the demand for uh, iron ore, copper, the heavy kind of commodities, you, you see these, these metals at multi-year highs. And that is already um, translating into, um, into a lot of, of demand you know, for um, a, a lot of the, uh, the, the the metals and minerals that are mined by South African companies. Uh, it's a pity we don't do much in the way of, the way of rare earths, because these things are used in, um, in wind turbines. And that mainly comes out of, uh, out of China. But uh, that, again, would be big demand as well. So you've been listening to Chris Gilmore, investment analyst and market commentator. Brian Van, Brian Van Royen is Chief Executive of Labat Africa, and he's also very well known in the rugby space. Brian, you've got into the cannabis market, which doesn't sound like something somebody's interested in sport would do, but you've obviously found lots of opportunities here in medical cabinets, cannabis. Well, well, Jackie, indeed. Um, uh, not only that, uh, you know, we're just about to announce our energy drinks, which is CBD infused. That's coming up in the market in the next couple of days. Uh, we have sampled it in South Africa. Uh, we did a deal with a Miami-based company, uh, particularly on what is happening in the cannabis industry worldwide and particularly the opening of the American market from a federal point of view that has been stagnated by uh, by the reluctance of Trump to open the market federally for, for cannabis in the U.S. But now uh, we there's a lot of signs uh, that sees that market opening and that gives a lot of opportunity both for the South African companies uh, certainly from our side with the acquisition of Ace Genetics. Ace Genetics is a seed bank in South Africa, which has got over 100 uh, different strains of seeds, particularly for the South African market in all nine provinces being tested. We've acquired that. Uh, they based in Stellenbosch, and we're rolling out that uh, seed bank in our um, uh, business out in the Northern Cape at the moment. So there's a lot of um, uh, advantages, uh, particularly from an energy point of view, uh, as opposed to just the, the medical side. The medical side is very important for us. Uh, indeed, uh, we, we're starting our observational studies on matching uh, cannabis-related uh, products against opiates, uh, and people can go on our website, uh, biodataresearch.co.za. Uh, we started those studies, and that's very important for us from a medical point of view. Brian, there's still a lot of controversy over whether uh, cannabis really does have medicinal benefits. Can you just give us some evidence about where it's actually working and which diseases you're helping to treat? Yes, like now you've really asked him the question he wanted you to ask. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, and, and that's why we, we, uh, we got uh, last year the acquisition of a company called Biodata. It's a research entity based in East London headed by Dr. Shikshkar Gallo. 
she's done a lot of studies treating cancer patients um, and she's got a lot of uh, uh, documented proof and that's why we're starting with our observational studies uh, right now. Uh, there is also a lot of proof worldwide uh, on the effects of CBD. I mean, GW Pharmaceuticals launched its first FDA-approved drug for epilepsy, Epidiolex, last year. Uh, uh, tell us that story about the cancer yeah. uh, patient. Yes. Uh, look, we, we, we've, got, uh, we've got a lot of um, uh, treatment uh, studies that have been done uh, on biodata. We've got those available. Those are uh, patient's documentation, but Dr. Gallo, uh, at any request, would be able to to provide that information. Uh, there is a proof that she has run uh, studies on, on stage four cancer patients that has been healed. I mean, I've, I've circulated some of those uh, publicly because it is public knowledge. Um, uh, obviously, it is something that... Um, that doesn't doesn't necessarily sit well with your big pharma companies because it's a natural product you know we we we're now moving into a territory where we're looking at replacing uh, opiates uh, which has become a very very addictive uh, talk of the town uh, medication in the US with huge uh, legal uh, challenges uh, against companies with cannabis the one thing that we know it's uh, you cannot overdose on it you know so uh, i'm just giving you the advice of what a medical doctor tells me uh, not only a doctor in medicine but also a phd uh, in uh, uh, in the study of cannabis uh, and that's what uh, dr gallo tells us so just to get this right then you've actually got uh, doctors working for you who are, have made a discovery that cannabis can help Cure cancer. Yes, indeed. That's extraordinary. Yeah. Yes, indeed. So, so it is. It is there. The proof is there. Uh, it also deals with um, uh, with excessive pain, severe pain. Uh, you know, uh, she has been prescribing uh, uh, under the regulations because bear in mind that you're psychoactive and your THC is still classified in many countries, including South Africa, uh, as a narcotic under narcotic act, you know, so so it's still illegal to to use that uh, over the prescribed amount by the uh, South African Health uh, Regulation Authority. You've been listening to Brian Van Rooyen, Chief Executive of Labat Africa. Brian, before we go, your market cap is around 150 million. What are you doing to unlock that value? Are you going to the regulators to get your uh, cannabis products regulated? You've mentioned this energy drink. How, well, how are you, what, what, can, what can investors get excited by? Well, the exec, uh, uh, we, we are about to make an announcement on our botanicals business in the Northern Cape, uh, uh, which we've just concluded. I've mentioned our... Um, uh, our uh, ACE genetics. The big thing is the retail outlets is to get people to get the products. Uh, we've got applications, signed up applications for over 35 stores at the moment. We've got four opened, um, two more opening in the next couple of days. Uh, that includes uh, Melrose Arch and Umschlanga. We've got Hartebeersport Dam going. Um, we've got Tiger Valley going. And uh, we're hoping that this year we'll be opening over 20 stores. So, yes, uh, what investors should be getting excited about is that your biggest market that has been closed. And that is why a lot of Canadian companies uh, have uh, felt the pinch out in Lesotho uh, are now uh, uh, uh reeling from the COVID and the fact that the American market was closed. The American market is opening and we want to be part of that. And, and it was for that reason that we've concluded a deal, which we, uh, the, uh, the details of the deal will be announced in the uh, next couple of days with a Miami-based company that has got all the products that we need from pet care to um, anxiety, to sleep disorders, to um, to cooking, to bolt on. 
you know, so we've got all those products. Energy drinks is the main thing for the sports. Your sodas, your your iced teas. We've got a range of iced teas that we're about to release in the market. That was Brian Van Rooyen, Chief Executive of Labat Africa. Pierre van der Hoven, Joint CEO of Silverleaf Investments, is also in the cannabis industry. Pierre? I'm not sure. Pierre's been coming and going a little bit, Jax. Uh, it seems as though he, he's in the east, he's in a part of the world where connectivity is not that easy. Um, I think uh, let's move on to Mornay Wilkin now, if you don't mind, uh, and then we'll come no back problem. to Pierre a little later. Uh, Mornay Wilkin is CEO of Hyprop. Mornay, are you with us? Yes, okay. How are you? Fine, thanks. Mornay, tell us uh, what it's like running a property company in these times. It's quite challenging and exciting at the same time. You take it day by day. You don't know what is what tomorrow holds, but um, quite exciting. Um, but it is challenging uh, given there's quite a number of things being impacted with COVID. But I do believe in the long term it will turn around again. What makes you so positive? I think everything changes. I mean, at the end of the day, any pandemic at the end, it will change. And when the pandemic change, you we as humans adapt and and I think we're quite resilient and we do move on and things will change. That's that's why I think it's always a changing world. <clears throat> we heard from Grace Harding, who represents the restaurant sector, but earlier she says that the waterfront looks like a, a zombie zone. There, there seem to be real problems in the retail sector and really getting um, things up and running again after COVID-19. What are, what are landlords doing to try and change the trajectory? As far as possible, from a high prop perspective, we assist our tenants where we can. Um, at the end of the day, we want functional malls, so where we can get rental relief or assist them to get through these difficult times, we try and do that. Um, I think it's a uh, time to stand together and make sure we get to the other side jointly. Um, there's certain industries, like you've mentioned, restaurants, that's impacted more than others. Um, luckily, the normal retailers are trading exceptionally, oh, not very well. I mean, they're trading much better than when it was a hard lockdown. Um, but certain industries, are shops are impacted more than others. Have, have you had time to have a rethink on your whole strategy? Uh, some companies like Equitas are doing really well because there's been quite a big shift to uh, people shopping from home and e-commerce. And there's been a lot of talk that this, these, some of these trends are, are going to stay with us over COVID-19. How are you factoring that into your in, longer-term plans? Jackie, we definitely have looked at our strategy to revisit it. I think one thing COVID has proved to us, we as humans are social beings. I think when the pandemic uh, this, oh, well, we hope it disappears one day or it normalizes. I think humans will go back to socializing and we think that will always make a place for people to be is a shopping center. I think you must make your shopping center a wider place for not just shopping. I think you must bring other community facilities in there so it really becomes a one-stop place. And distribution could be part of that. I mean, if you take the location of a lot of the shopping centers, is very central. What we are driving quite a bit with our shopping centers is doing new initiatives. For example, we've done something with Pargo where they initiate uh, collections from online shopping. We're getting the Pargo collection points within our malls. And by doing that, obviously, you get the food count into your malls. Uh, we're looking at other initiatives like Park Up, Self Storage, and bringing all of those things into your malls, we do think we can create uh, longevity in our malls. Pargo, it sounds a little bit like Argos uh, in the UK, a bit of a <laughs> rip-off there. Monet, we are looking for opportunities to invest in now, bombed-out stocks. And mm-hmm. prop, give us the prop story. When you go on your roadshow after your results and you talk to all the financial, the, the financial community and they're asking you all these difficult questions – what is the thrust of what you're telling them? And, and, and I mean this now from a retail investor's point of view. We look at the, at the way your share price has collapsed and consider surely 
There's got to be a bottom somewhere. They opened up in Texas in the next couple of days. 100% open. No more, no more uh, masks or anything. COVID is not going to be with us forever. People are going to be back in shopping centers. What's the high prop story? Yeah, look, I'm exactly on that page. I think it's not forever and a day. I think um, what we've seen from a high prop perspective, although the, our share price did take a hammering, it has um, come back uh, much more. Um, I mean, it moved from a low to, of 15. It's around 28 to 30 at the current share price. Our net asset value after quite a bit of impairment on our assets, where I think our assets is currently fairly valued. Your net asset value is around 74 rand after uh, we did a successful drip that I lose to about 66 rand. Okay, slowly, so slowly, 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 slowly. <laughs> I, can't, I don't so, know if anybody else is following this, but you said your share price is 28. Your net asset value is? Uh, 66 rand. 66 rand. Okay, so, yeah, you, so you're giving me, uh, your shares today are giving me 30 cents in the rand. Is that correct? That means um, I'm trading at a 50% discount to Monaf at the moment. Yeah. Okay, and, and uh, Justin, what was the high for Hyprop? Hyprop's high um, was in 2016 uh, at 140 rand a share. And Monaf, if I can remember correctly, this is when Hyprop was trading at a premium to net asset value. That was correct, Justin. Here we go, Jax. Now we've got a little bit of uh, a little bit of meat mm. to play around with, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I think uh, one of the things that was driving uh, trading above uh, NAV was uh, growth in earnings um, and distributions. I think it is resetting the base, and from that base, you can grow again. So, is now a good time to buy or share? Do you think? Would you be buying yeah, your share back? <clears throat> uh, buy my share back, meaning share buybacks. Yeah. At the moment, we 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 addressing how uh, we've got uh, quite highly leveraged at the moment. So we've been working on reducing our debt. So effectively, buyback of shares is definitely an option to consider. But at this point in time, we rather settling some of our debt. We have reduced our debt quite successfully to about thirty eight point eight percent. And we've got a plan to reduce it to about 31% over the next few months. Monet, I see that you sold Atterbury Value Mart the other day. Hi, um, Hyde Park Corner and Rosebank Mall are my two local watering holes. Are those <coughs> potentially getting sold off in, in the future? Uh, we haven't disclosed what assets we're looking to recycle. Obviously, I think each asset must make sense for us to keep it long-term in the portfolio. So strategically, we have earmarked some assets we want to sell, and and we haven't uh, communicated it to the market. Um, but we are engaging with potential buyers with certain assets. So, Mornay, just looking at your competitors, which ones would you be snapping up? Just going back to the idea of buying some bargains now. <laughs> There's quite a few. I think you need to look at where is the, uh, the company's trading relative to the NAV. And I think you must also look back in the right management team. Um, there is quite a few out there. I would personally not buy a Robosis at this point in time. <clears throat> Just uh, why not? Mm. I think if you, I think you must look at the underlying properties. I think they've got retail and commercial properties. Um, some of the retail is a bit under pressure and a little bit too big for where they're trading. So I think that could have some pressure in terms of the the company. Tell us a bit more about your offshore strategy. Our offshore strategy, we started investing into Eastern Europe. Um, Eastern Europe, what we like about the region is quite a lot of not so much retail. It's not overtraded as you've got in South Africa as well as um, the U.S. and the U.K. So we see some nice growth coming from those countries and specifically around retail. And Given online is also happening at the same time, it's not a situation where you overtrade it and your online retail is starting to eat into your physical retail space. So I think it's a nice position to be and grow over the next few years.
Well, now, you didn't answer the question that we were asking you, or Jackie asked you. She said, okay, all right, so rebosis is off the table. But, yeah. but, but uh, you know, Warren Buffett, what he does what, as a young analyst, uh, he used to go to CEOs like yourself, and his question to them was, excluding your company, what are the three companies you would like to own uh, that you would buy that you could lock up for five years, and what are the three that you would never own if you had to hold up for the next five years? We know Robosis is on the second list. What's uh, on the first uh, list? Alec, the first list, I will definitely put a company called Mass Real Estate. Um, They also focus in Central Eastern Europe. I think they've got quite a nice pipeline, and I think when the market turns, you can see nice growth out of that. Um, another company that I think has got legs in the long term, unfortunately, they, they're under pressure at this point in time, given they mo- mainly focused on development as a tech. They got scope to develop that waterfall precinct, so I think there is room in that specific share. And then I think the resilience table is always interesting place to, to maybe invest. Um, there's the beer has been successful with a number of his initiatives, so it's always interesting to watch out for them. I'm glad you added a tack there, because if you hadn't, I think you'd have some friends not very happy with you. But uh, <laughs> anyway, I'd, I'd be interested to know in the cannabis industry, Jackie, uh, who Brian von Royen would be would be suggesting are, are worth are stocks worth owning. Absolutely, Brian, who would you be investing in? Well, I'll be investing in Labatt, of course. <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't With, listening. Yeah. You know, he was yeah. obviously playing on his phone or something. Yeah. We yeah. said excluding your excluding company. company. Well, uh, there'll be there'll be a number of Canadian companies uh, that we'd be looking at uh, that has got investments out in Africa, which is now which they have disposed of, and is up for the taking, uh, particularly in Lesotho because of the taxation. Ah. Sounds like are you circling around them? Oh yes, we are. <laughs> that was Brian Van Royen of Labat Africa. Coming up, my colleague Melanie Nathan has the news highlights. African Rainbow Minerals headline earnings for the six-month end of December more than doubled to a record high. An interim dividend of 10 rand per share was declared. Both platinum and ferrous metals earnings were boosted by higher US dollar prices. The Solidarity Fund, set up to finance South Africa's fight against COVID-19, plans to spend half a million rand to boost the country's vaccine rollout program. The fund will withdraw half of the money from its own account and an equal amount will be raised by donors, said Chief Executive Officer Tandien Zimande. The support will ease pressure on a government trying to contain spending after a surge in debt and an economic contraction. South African civil servants have demanded a pay rise that's more than double the inflation rate, a week after the nation's finance minister insisted the government can't afford increases. The Public Servants Association, which represents almost a quarter of a million government employees, says they want across-the-board wage increases of inflation plus four percentage points. South Africa's inability to balance competing interests is hampering the implementation of growth-enhancing structural reforms, according to Kuben Naidu, a deputy governor of the central bank. Naidu says the country doesn't have a large enough middle class to play a stabilizing role in policymaking. Policy paralysis means that Africa's most industrialized economy was stuck in its longest downward cycle since World War II, even before the coronavirus pandemic. Two residents of New York City have been infected with a variant of COVID-19 first discovered in South Africa. According to our partners, the Wall Street Journal, the city's health commissioner said that officials are looking at whether the new variant is more transmissible, causes more severe illness, and whether it reduces the effectiveness of vaccines. Subscribe to Business Premium for full access to the Wall Street Journal. I'm Melanie Nathan, and that was your Biz News Flash Briefing. Justin Rowe Roberts covers the Johannesburg stock market for business. Justin, can you give us a wrap of what happened on the Johannesburg stock market today? The JSC All Share Index was slightly down on the day to 68,300. Some of the day's highlights include SAPI increased by 7% to over 47 Rand on the back of news that investment bank JP Morgan increased its price target on the paper and packaging manufacturer to 70 Rand. Patrice Mutsepe's mining arm, African Rainbow Minerals, lost more than 12 rand on the day. That was on the back of a worse-than-expected interim results release. 
diversified miner BHP Billiton decreased by 20 rand to a shave over 470 rand, coming off all-time high prices on the back of weaker commodity prices across the board today. Lastly, JSC heavyweight NASPIS increased by more than 50 rand as it heads towards the 4,000 rand a share mark, and that's on the back of Tencent increasingly strongly in Hong Kong this morning. In the currency markets, very little movement today. The rand is at 15 rand to the dollar, 21 rand to the pound, and 18 rand to the euro. Gold weakened by $7 to $1,715 an ounce. Bitcoin was up almost $2,500 on the day to $51,000 a Bitcoin, which equates to around 765,000 rand. And Brent crude is up by $1 to $63.63 a barrel. That's all we've got time for today. From me, Jackie Cameron, and the rest of the team at BizNews, thank you for joining us for today's BizNews Power Hour. We'll be back at the same time tomorrow, live here on Fine Music Radio. You can also find the show later on the BizNews Radio channel on Spotify. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at BizNews. News.